Thank you, Daniel. Isn't he awesome? You do such a good job. Um, well, morning, everyone. Good to see your faces. A couple of faces I don't know, so welcome. I look forward to getting to know you. Um, my, my intro today is hashtag I hurt. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> didn't work on the house. We were laying some flooring yesterday, and I feel it today. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to say this, and some of you are going to be like, you look it, and other people are going, you don't know what you're talking about. I feel my age today. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thanks, I look that good. Uh, <laughs> so I'm feeling it, I'm feeling it, it's good. But the, the cost of hard work. So, <laughs> so you know, we're in uh, this series going through Acts. We've crossed the halfway point. We're in Acts 17 this morning. So we're going to read through Acts 17. And, and this morning's passage is really about three different locations Paul goes to and three different kind of engagements that happen in each of the locations. So we're going to read through this passage. Um, one thing I want you to pay attention to, because I'm, I'm not going to talk about it, but I just want you to pay attention to it. Who comes to faith? Who are the people that Luke is making sure we understand our coming to faith moment? So let's jump into Acts chapter 17. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll read through to the end. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Silas, in order to bring them I missed something in there. We'll just skip on. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. 
A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Lots of content, lots of activity, lots to understand in this passage. But in Acts 17, there are these three different locations that Paul goes to. And what I want to look at is just do a bit of comparing and contrasting the different ways that he ministered in each of the, the areas, the different responses in each of the places where he was. So we're going to start um, with the first city, which is Thessalonica. And so if you're not aware, there's a letter in the New Testament, first or two letters, first and second Thessalonians, that Paul wrote to this church. Um, so it get, it goes here and it is established. So Thessalonica is, um, is an important city. It is strategically located at the intersection of a number of trade routes. So it's a global kind of commerce center. And it's, it's just an interesting location when you think about this urban center on all these trade routes with access to the world that the Holy Spirit would appoint this to be one of the church bases from which Paul would do ministry around that area. So just, just a little tidbit. Um, we know as, as we watch him enter Thessalonica, we see again Paul has a mode of operation when he goes into an area. It's the same almost every situation he goes into. He heads to the synagogue. He reasons with the Jews. He gives it his best shot. 
And then from there, he moves out and ministers to the Gentiles. We also see all the way through that he's down by the riverbank, he's in the marketplace, he's in the synagogue, he's in houses, he's on the temple steps, he's in the courtyards. So he's just taken every opportunity he can find to share the gospel with the people around about him. So this is his MO. We see in Thessalonica, he heads to the synagogue, um, to a place where he could engage. Um, the question becomes, we'll talk about this as we go, but just to, to plant it here at the beginning, Paul has this pattern. He heads to the synagogue. Why does he head to the synagogue? He's a Jewish man. He's a rabbi. He's respected in the synagogue, and it's a place where learning, spiritual thinking is happening and where his voice is heard. So we have to ask the question ourselves, what is the synagogue for us? What is the place that we go to where our voice will be heard? where we have a commonality with people that opens the door for the gospel to be shared. Because you're not going to go share the, well, you can go share the gospel in church because there's people in church that don't know Jesus. But where is the place where your voice will be heard? Um, the other thing that I think is interesting to think about when we talk about the synagogue, we read into, Paul going into the synagogue, we read, it, read into that our experience of church. So they go into the synagogue, someone stands up and preaches from the Torah, everyone listens, and then they leave at the end after some tea and coffee and Kathy's amazing cookies. Uh, but, but, but that's not the way synagogue worked. It was more of a dialogue style of education. So someone would stand up and read scripture. Someone may expound on it very briefly, but at the end of the day, they would enter into a dialogue. Conversation would happen around spiritual things. So Paul is going to this place knowing that spiritual dialogue is going to take place, and spiritual dialogue is always a better way to grow than sitting and listening to someone up here talking at you. We know that, right? That's why home groups, small groups, Bible studies, classes that, 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 like the one Jessica are going to teach are so important for engaging dialogue around the truths of God. So in, in Thessalon, Thessalonica, um, he's talking to a combination of Jews and Greek-fearing Gentiles. So you get this mixed combination. The, the key thing here is all of them are familiar with the Old Testament. Jews who have grown up in it, God-fearing Gentiles are people who are open to the, 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 the Jewish way but haven't converted to Judaism, but they're really interested. So there's a shared knowledge base. So Paul walks into this environment where people are aware of the Old Testament, and so what does he do? He begins to expound the Old Testament because that's what they have in common, and they already have that foundation on which, which to build. The passage says, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, and then he explained and proved that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So he's not going in to explain that they need a Messiah. He's not going in to explain that they need a Savior. He's going in to explain the thing that they'd misunderstood, that the Messiah was going to suffer and then be raised. And he's going to prove to them and argue with them that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of that person in Scripture that they've been looking at. So when he's around these religious people, especially people who had a knowledge of the shared foundation of their faith, he reasons with Scripture, he explains who the Messiah was and what was necessary, and he proves that this is Jesus. So living in a Western world, we can assume that we may be around people that have a knowledge of Scripture, at least a working knowledge of what the gospel is. I would argue that these days, it's probably very unusual that the people that you're around have any idea of the Bible or the gospel. So when we're like, we're going to share the gospel, let me tell you that God created the world. Jesus was the 
the atoning sacrifice for your sins, and now he's been raised to, to life, and now you can have eternal life with him forever. They're like, what on earth are you talking about? They don't have the shared foundation that existed historically. And so we have to be very careful. Like if we're talking about people who have wandered away from the church, that used to be part of the church, we can walk in and we can look at the, the Bible and go, you understand the Bible. Let me remind you of these key truths about the Bible, what it is, uh, why it exists the way it exists. Uh, and, and let's explain who Jesus is and we'll move on from there. So, so all that to say, he's in this situation where he's with these people that understand the scriptures. He starts with the scriptures. Um, and so moving on, uh, oh, let, let me hit this little verse. I've got this up here so that I would remember it. There's this little verse sandwiched in here that I just think is fantastic. He's sharing the gospel. People are coming to faith. Persecution arises. And then there's this little verse as they're arguing about who they are. It says, these men have caused trouble all over the world. I just love that. <laughs> these men have caused trouble all over the world. When I read this and I was looking at this verse and thinking about it, I was like, oh, if this was true of the church today. Not going out there and causing the kind of trouble that the church is known for, for causing the world. We're not talking about the crusades where people are going in and, and brutalizing countries and destroying people. But oh, that the gospel proclamation would go out from the church and people would be disturbed because of what they see. I said this last week, you know, that the world has been turned upside down by what they're sharing. This is not, let's go out there and do it our way and, and, and make Christianity the dominant thing in the whole country and we're going to rule through Christianity. It's not that. But the world was being turned upside down. What did Jesus say? The first are going to be last. You're going to be a servant of everybody. You're going to learn to love your enemy. Uh, you're going to be marked by love and radical service. There's going to be radical forgiveness coming from this church, transformed lives, generosity as we pour it into the world. I'm like, oh, that the world would look at us and go, look at the crazy way these people are living, the generosity out there, the love of neighbors, the fight for reconciliation. I wish that people were looking at the church, going, look at the trouble they're causing. And, and in this little line, all over the world, this is the perception as they've moved on this missionary journey from Jerusalem all the way through to Thessalonica. They're looking at this and going, this is worldwide that they're causing this trouble. Um, one little church starting in Jerusalem, a church planted in Antioch, Antioch launching out into the rest of the world, and they're going, the world is being changed by what you're doing. Um, let us be a church that causes trouble all over the world as we flip the world system upside down and walk in the way of Jesus. The second place that they go to is Berea, and I'm sure you're familiar with this. This is a loved passage by many people. Um, but you see the similar thing. They go to this area, and, and he goes straight for the synagogue, and he's preaching to the, the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. But there's this little line that describes the difference in, in the posture of the Bereans as they receive the truth. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Um, this is a group of people eager, with great eagerness at the message. Are you someone that's eager for the truth? Do you spend your week looking for and longing for the truth? Do you wake up in the morning going, I want to be in Scripture because I want my dose of the truth today? You know, we are bombarded with messages all day, every day. 
whether it's from friends, from TV, from social media, from our work, from memos, from the news, all of that is bombarding us. And most of it is not true. <laughs> and so we need every 24 hours a dose of truth uh, to be imparted into us to keep us grounded in the midst of that. So are you someone, are you eager for receiving the message? That part of verse 11, they examined the scriptures every day. They, it doesn't just say they read a little bit, <laughs> read five verses in the morning. It says they examined it, like they studied and poured over it. They hungered for truth, and they did it every day. So they're hearing a message that's different to what they'd been used to hearing. Remember, this is Jews. They know the Old Testament. They're hearing this message that speaks of truth. They're so hungry for truth that they run back to the Scriptures to see if the things that are being said are true. Now, what happens in our Christianity is we hear a message when we're 20, and then we write it out until we're 80, right? And we're like, well, this is it's just the way it is. It's just what I learned. I was taught it all the way through. And we're like, we're not eager to listen to the truths, and we're not going to Scripture and say, let me re-examine. I want us to be a church that when we hear something, when you hear me speak, I hope we're like Bereans. And you're going, I heard something today. I need to search the scripture and see if this is true. And if it's not, you come to me with your armload of scriptures and we sit down and go this, 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 and this. You got to account for this. Like I, I expect that from you. You're the accountability that I get as a pastor, but it comes from you examining the scriptures every day to see if the truths you've heard are real. Um, another problem in this area w w when we're in the church today is scholarship has advanced a lot, especially over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, but you go back 100 years, scholarship is massively different. We've got online cataloged every Greek manuscript, every Hebrew manuscript that's ever existed. You have the ability now to go into a computer, put in a, Hebrew, a, a Greek or Hebrew word that only appears once in the Bible. And before they had to figure out what the word meant, give their best guess, translate scripture. And now they can look at every place in Greek that it's ever appeared and go, oh, hang on, we're wrong about how we translated that word. It actually is a completely different meaning into what we understand. Um, there's, there's advances in our understanding of the culture that they lived in. And so we've got to, when we're hearing things and we're hearing people teach, we've got to say, okay, at 20 years old, I believe this. Maybe at 30 years old, I believe this. Maybe at 60 years old, I believe this. I'm hearing an alternative view. I need to go back to Scripture and re-examine. You may end up exactly where you started, but at least when someone asks you a question, you can say, yeah, I don't agree with that, and here's why. Because a month ago, I did a big study on this, and I landed in the same place that I am. Let's not rely on old study. Let's not rely on old conviction. Let's not rely on old sermons. Let's be people who are regularly coming back to Scripture, not to confirm what we already believe, but with an openness that God can change the things that we're thinking about. There's lots of it is going to remain the same. Jesus is always going to be the Son of God. But here's the deal. You can read things that say he doesn't, and you'll find out they're not true. <laughs> and if you come back to Scripture, it's going to be really clear, right? Um, scripture becomes the barometer. So let's be a church that's continually coming back, re-examining our core convictions so that we can see in light of, of the, the new advances in scholarship that we're still in the same place so that we can defend today against the people, the things that people are saying. And we don't just say, well, it's what the Bible says. I believed that my whole life. So if we're diligently examining the scriptures every day, we will have more to offer the world round about, especially when we disagree, because we'll be armed with the right information to be able to challenge the views that they're walking in.
So don't lean heavily on old study. Continue to build new stuff. Um, third place they visit is Athens. Um, and, and I love how this, this starts. So they're out of any kind of potential Jewish world. They're in the height of like Hellenism. So this, they're in Greek culture. Everything about it is, is opposed to the way the Jews live. And I love that it starts with this description of Paul going into the city, and it just says he was deeply distressed at the idolatry that he saw in the city. And I, I read it, and I find myself wondering, like, when I walk around the city, am I deeply disturbed by the idolatry I see? Or am I deeply disturbed by the things that I don't like? Right? <laughs> And, and the question becomes, what is the idolatry of our city? What are the things out there that we should be being disturbed by? Ask God, like stir up distress at the things that are not of you. Um, as a transplant to Portland and as someone that, that grew up in another country, like I lived in the Portland area for four years. I went back home for six years. I, I've been back for five years. When the riots hit last year, I was watching all this stuff on the news, and, and I asked a friend, a black pastor friend, I said, help me to understand. I just don't understand why people downtown are so angry. Like, for me, it feels like their response is, like, way beyond, like, the situation that's happened. Like, help me understand why people here are so angry. And so she pointed me to a few resources online, some documentaries to watch, and I heard and found out all this stuff about Oregon, the, the founding of Portland, the plan for gentrification. I found about, out about these sundown towns and the racism that existed in Oregon, and I tell you, I was distraught. Better word may be disgusted. And I was like, how have I been here for nine years and I didn't know that this is the founding of the city that we're in? I was like, I don't, I don't necessarily agree. I, well, I definitely don't agree with the violence and all the stuff that's going on. But man, I understand why they're angry. In terms of U.S. history, we're talking 120 years when we're looking at civil rights stuff. When we're talking about Oregon and we're talking about Portland specific, we're talking about 40 years. Have you ever looked at how recently Oregon started repealing things that were discriminatory against black people intentionally. Have you ever looked to see with the towns round about, Portland, Medford, uh, Ashland, different places, and the, when they took down the sundown signs that said if you're black or Latino, you're not allowed to be in the city past midnight or you're going to get beat up? Like, it's the heritage of our city. I was distraught. Um, and I say this, not, I, I'm, this is not to go anywhere political, but just it was a moment where I was like, I was confronted with a historic idol of Portland, and my heart was broken. And then the question becomes, God, what do we do? So the, the team of people that we were with, we started doing these prayer vigils downtown. Let's go to the places of historic pain for the black community, and let's just ask God to transform it and, and redeem it to something good. There was no political activism. We stood in lines. We took a mask and tape and stuck it over our mouth, and we prayed in silence, and we just wrote something on this tape that, that we wanted to pray, pray against injustice, pray for healing, for wholeness, for salvation. And we just stood, we would line streets, and we just stand there silently praying that God would transform the community. But, but I, I mean, I'd been here for nine years, and I was like, how did I not know that this is recent Oregon history? That people downtown that are rioting, it's their grandparents 
for some of them, their parents that weren't allowed to buy houses, that had their property destroyed, um, that were beaten for being in towns. I'm like, that's horrendous that it's so recent. Uh, and I felt sick to my stomach. It's an idol in our city. We've got to say, God, what are we going to do about this? How do we as the church not, not go out there and become political a- activists? Maybe that's some of your calling, but what's our role in tearing down those idols? It always starts with us. Like, do I have a hint of that in my life? Because if I do, I've got to tear it down. And it may not be discrimination against a black person. It may be locking your doors as you drive past a homeless person because you're making an assumption about who they are and what they're going to do. We've got to tear down those assumptions that we make. that, That was a new one for me here. I'm asking God, what are the idols of our city? Obviously, there's materialism and there's sexual idolatries and there's there's multiple brokennesses. There's divisions. There's even church idolatries about the way we worship and who is fit to worship. Um, So we've got to be asking God, help us tear these down. I didn't mean to go there quite so uh, forcefully, but yeah, look look into the history of Portland. What are the historic idols that we are inheriting and walking in? What's our job in the church to pray a different existence into being? The other thing that I do think is interesting as you read this passage is he sees the idols. What it doesn't say is so then he went into the city and started tearing them down and he started rebuking every person he came into contact with who was worshiping one of those idols. I mean, that's what I expect. When I read Kings, the whole thing about the book of Kings is like, this king comes in and they build these idols, and the next king comes in who worships God, and he just starts tearing them down and cleansing the city. Like, Paul's this zealous guy for God that was murdering Christians. You'd think when he saw the the idolatry of the city, he'd start ripping them down. But he had a different way of approaching how he tackled the idols when he was in this place. He doesn't start condemning them. He does the same thing he always does. He heads for a synagogue, and then he heads to the marketplace and begins speaking in the marketplace. And it describes two groups of philosophers that he ends up in a conversation with. The first group are called the Epicureans. The second group are called the Stoics. So here's a little brief philosophy lesson. There's probably people in the room that have studied this way more than I have and can probably expound on this more. Anytime you're trying to summarize a whole philosophical system into a few lines, you don't do it justice. So this is just the crass summary of Epicurean uh, philosophy. So two things that kind of come up in the way Paul addresses this philosophy. They believed that though there might be gods existing in the world, they live in a domain very separate from humanity and have nothing to do with humans. So they're over there doing their divine thing, we're over here doing a human thing, and there's no interaction. Um, That's in contrast to the Greek religion. The Greek and Roman religions were that you had this group of gods up there, Zeus and Aphrodite, that are manipulating humanity, that we serve them and they're playing games with us. So the dominant belief was in this pantheon of gods that were intricately and manipulatively involved in humanity. So the Epicureans were like, they might exist, they might not, but they're completely separate and they're not involved in us at all. So the, the core of their philosophy pleasure is the chief good in life. So you have to live in such a way that you derive the greatest amount of pleasure and the least amount of pain. Usually it meant pleasure in moderation, because if you overindulge in something, it usually brings pain. But their whole thing was, how can we live pleasurable lives? Kind of hedonistic in, in their approach. So the gods are separate from us. They're not involved in our lives. And just go out there and live a good, happy, fulfilling life, satisfying your desires and avoiding pain. 
In contrast, you had the Stoics. The Stoics were pantheists. So pantheism is the belief that God and creation is completely the same thing. So there's no, like, nature is God. God inhabits the planet, and so you can worship a flower in the same way that you could worship the divine because they're the same person. That means every human, every created thing is all siblings. We're all kind of tied together. They're basically the same. Um, so two, Epicureans and Stoics, two very different views of who God was. One, he's so intricately involved in creation that he is creation. And the other, they're there, but they're completely disconnected from us. And then Stoic philosophy, virtue is found in self-control as a means to overcome destructive emotions. So they saw a lot of emotion as negative. And so when we describe someone today, they're very Stoic. Usually means like they're emotionally steady and they don't show a lot. Um, And then they believe that unbiased thinking allows you to understand universal reason, which they called the logos. The universal principles that you could use to understand how creation works. And so the whole goal was manage your emotions, squash any strong emotions because unbiased thinking comes without emotion. So if you want to have pure unbiased thinking, you've got to feel passionless about everything. Um, And so you've got these two groups that, that, that are in there engaging and Paul begins this conversation with them. I do think it's really interesting And the way he begins it, uh, you know, I see uh, you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship. This is verse uh, 25. The Lord who made the world and everything in it, a statement against uh, the Stoics who believe that God and the world are the same thing. So his first statement, you know, God made everything, so he's separate. Um, He does not live in temples built by human hands, which is getting at the Jewish way of thinking. He's not served by human hands, which is getting away from the the Greek and Roman way of thinking that we had to serve and placate these gods. Um, From one man he made the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. Yes, he's not creation, but yes, we are all connected. So everything he's doing in here is is responding to their philosophy. Um, And it's really, really interesting when you start looking at that. I share those things because, because here's the deal. I think the church today looks more like a blend of Epicureanism and Stoicism than it does look like the, the Christianity of the Bible. I think the church today looks more like a blend of Epicureanism and Stoicism than it does look like the Christianity of the Bible. Live your life, indulge, like engage in pleasures, just not too much, and don't show too much emotion. That's kind of the height of Western Christianity. It's, it's the model that we look at. Don't, don't raise your hands in church. Don't get too excited about something. Don't overindulge. Don't un, underindulge. It's, it's basically the American dream in many senses. Have a pleasurable existence where you're unbiased and un, uh, unflustered by the world. What would it look like for the church to be fully engaged in, in their emotions and in our pleasures in a way that honors God because they're given to us by him? What does it look like to show those emotions to the world that we're excited about things, that we're passionate about God, that we love to worship, that we care about brokenness and injustice? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, this whole sermon, these three different groupings, it's about learning to engage with culture. This is what I think Paul does so well and what we see so well in this passage. 
He walks into synagogue and he, he knows the commonality they have in the Old Testament. And so they look at it together and he builds from the New Testament to help them understand who Jesus is. He goes into a, a culture where they're hungry and he spends time with them every day engaging the truth. He walks into a, a place like Athens that's so opposed to the way that the gospel functions. And what does he do? He doesn't pull out his Bible and go, okay, let's start a Bible study. He begins with their philosophy. Let's look at the things you're hungry for. Yes, in this group over here, yes, God and creation are connected. Over here, you know, let's crack this part of you. you. You believe gods might exist, but they're not intimately involved. I'm going to tell you that they're so intimately involved, they actually came and lived here and died for you. Um, and, and he begins with their, with their philosophy. And then he's invited to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is like a, it's like a court. It's a bit like the Supreme Court. They're hearing these things. They're curious. So they bring him in, and he's kind of potentially on trial for the things that he's saying. He may just be presenting because they're curious, but, it, but the Areopagus was a court. So he's likely in there kind of defending and proving that the things that he's saying are not against the government. And when he's in there, he begins talking to them about this altar that he saw, a pagan altar inscribed to an unknown God and explaining, like, let me tell you who this guy is. Let me look at some of your poets that say these things and let me help you see that the truth of what some of your most beloved poets are saying. And he begins to engage the culture that they're a part of in order to present the gospel to them. You know, it's funny, in certain parts of Christianity, if we were to say, you know, I went in and, and look at this altar that you guys are worshiping, let me explain the significance of God in this. You're like, what are you doing beneath an altar? Why were you even there to see it in the first place? That's demonic, and you shouldn't be anywhere near that. Stay clear. <laughs> Paul wasn't scared that near an idol was going to affect him, but he saw it as an opportunity to take their culture uh, and, and use it to engage them. So it, it gets me thinking, like, what are the ways that we engage the culture round about us? What in Christianity connects with the people out there? You've got people that are engaged in new age philosophies that are looking for these out-of-body experiences and, and these almost transcendent divine manifestations. What if you looked at them and talked to them about prophecy and the ability to encounter God? Like God can speak to you. God can move in your life. What, what about the people out there that are engaged heavily in the sciences rather than saying, yeah, that stuff's not, you just need to have faith in the Bible. What if we said, yeah, let's look at the, the, the magnificence of creation. Let's talk about the things in Scripture that align with, with, with what you see. Um, what if you look at the movements out there that are talking about inclusivity and tolerance and we're saying, yeah, I, I connect with you. God wants everyone included in his kingdom. Like God teaches us to love one another. We share that value. Let's build on that. We don't want to enable, but, but there, are, there are key elements that we connect with that are the same, and we need to walk in those. What if we're looking at the self-help world out there? They're buying all these books. They're going to all these conferences. Uh, let's talk about the transformative work in the spirit inside of us. What if we're talking about the, the, the power of now? Like I just sit and I put positive vibes out into the universe because I know it'll bring it back. We call that prayer. And you know you don't need to put it out into the universe to someone that does, to, to, to just an entity. You can actually direct it to the one who created you. And he is desiring to answer and give you the things that you're looking for. What if rather than distance ourselves from poetry and rap music and rock music and movies, we actually engaged it 
because Paul knew their poetry and was able to engage them in it. I remember uh, when I, before I was a believer, I was in that pseudo in-between place. I would sit at my piano. This is for the younger people in the room before you could go online and just download a chord chart and lyrics. So what we had to do was either use a cassette tape or I wasn't old enough to use one of those big black circle things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> cassette tape or a CD tape or listening on the radio and you'd, you'd pl I'd play it over and over again and I'd be trying to scribble it. I missed a word and I'd go back and I'd re-listen and then you're asking mom, can you work out what they're saying in this line? And you're trying to figure out what, what does, it, does it make sense? And then you go back to the beginning now that you've got the lyrics written out and you're sitting at the piano and it's what chord is it? What key's it in? Okay, that one, and you'd write it down. And I created this busker book that was all of these songs that, that that were things in, in the charts that just connected with me. And I'd put together all of these song charts, and it wasn't until I came to faith, I'd spend most of my time at the piano singing these songs, I came to faith, and then one day I was like, ah, oh, I just want to busk, and so I pull out the book, and I start reading through the songs. And I'm like, all of the songs were expressing my longing for God, the desire for love, and, and some version of the kingdom of God out in the world. Like, the, that, that evil secular music out there was actually describing my deepest longings. What if we could listen to the latest song on the radio and then when you're in a store and you hear someone playing it or your neighbor plays their music overly loud, rather than getting frustrated, it's like, man, there's some really interesting lyrics in that song um, that express a longing. Let me help you underst understand what that longing is. Uh, and that God wants to meet you in that place. So we need to be exegetes of the culture. We need to study the culture around about us. If we want to engage the community around about us, we have to understand what they care about, what they enjoy, and we have to join them there rather than asking them to leave their culture behind and come and join us in the culture that we've grown up in, that we've come to love, that is so foreign to the rest of the world. We need to learn to engage the culture around about us so that God can move in us. The last little piece of this is, in, and everywhere he went, as he shared the gospel, there were people that were hungry and there were people that rejected it. There may be someone that God puts on your heart who is adamantly opposed to the gospel. You pray for them and you take the opportunities that are there. But as a church, we don't want to waste our time pursuing people that don't want Jesus when there are so many people out there that are hungering for him and, and, and the, the, the low-hanging fruit on the tree, you know? Some people are gifted to sit and argue and debate and lead someone from complete adamant atheism into Christianity. Most of us are looking at people around about us that are apathetic, and they're hungry, and they're desiring. Let's spend our time with those people and move them closer to the kingdom of God um, in that process. So anyway, this is who we're going to be as a church. We're going to have to learn to learn the culture around about. We're going to have to learn to engage the culture of the people around us so that we can translate the gospel into a way that's going to connect with their longings so that they can come to know the Savior that we so greatly worship. Um, let me pray. God, you are, uh, you're amazing and at work. Like, you are in everything. Um, every truth that exists in the world is your truth. And, and, and so we can go out and we can look at the systems, the philosophies, the music, the, the, uh, the, the ideologies, and we can find evidence of you 
So, so God, we need, first of all, as we look at the city round about us and the idolatry of our city and our country, we need you to make us greatly distressed, first at where we feel at present in our own life, um, and then being agents to help transform the idolatry that we see round about us. But God, it's not going to be by storming out there and breaking it down. It's going to be uh, on our knees crying out to you and faithfully ministering in the places that you have us. So help us to be faithful in the communities that we're in. And then, Lord, we need help to exegete the culture around about. We need help to step into places where we can connect with people. We need help in those places to see the longings of the people around about us, to understand where you're present in their situation and connect the truth of the gospel with the brokenness of their life. Um, and so, God, would you make us a church that is effective at engaging the culture so that everyone from the religious to those who are far from you would find their home in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.